0: Hi everyone, welcome to Tribal Gatherings. Uh, my name is Mark Ingram and my guest today is Professor Rob Dwyer-Joyce. Uh, Professor Rob Dwyer-Joyce did his PhD in tribology in 1993. After a short stint at British Gash, uh, Rob joined the University of Sheffield in 1994 as a lecturer. Whilst at Sheffield he rose to head of department. His research expertise is industrial wear and lubrication problems and the development of metrology tools for tribology. So welcome, Rob.
1: All right, thanks Mark. It's a pleasure to be here
0: thank you okay we'll start with the uh, start with a common question how how did you get into tribology
1: that was a long time ago when i was 17 years old believe it or not so i did an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering and i was sponsored by um a company called nnc national nuclear corporation and uh who um designed uh, nuclear power stations and i was sponsored by those and one of my placements was in it was a research and development center. It was called RD4 or RD5 or something like this. And I got into a tribology project there looking at detonation gun coatings for reactor parts. So I did a Farnia project with those guys. I carried it on with my Farnia project at Imperial and Richie Sales supervised that. And that was kind of where my interest in tribology started. It was in these funny reactor coatings.
0: You did your, was your undergrad at Imperial as
1: well? So yes, it was Me- mechanical engineering. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did the um, what was then the B engine mechanical engineering. I was sponsored by NNC, and and then I I I joined, um, British Gas after graduating, and then I did a PhD after that. What was the title of your PhD? It was it was debris effects in rolling element bearings. So so that was um, sponsored by SKF and uh, supervised by Ritchie. And I had the great pleasure of being supervised by Stathis Ionides as industrial supervisor um, as well. So fantastic opportunity to work with both Richie and Stathis in, in the Imperial Lab. And it was all about um, when there's particles in the oil, what effect that would have on rolling bearings. So Ritchie had done quite a bit of work before on fatigue and reduction in fatigue life caused by super clean filtration of... Of, of lubricants and I was more focusing on where and how particles could cause abrasive wear of bearings and trying to build wear models and wear experimental methods it's a great platform because I learned loads of things by doing that you know lots of experimental equipment lots of different test techniques lots of different modeling techniques what kind of experimental setups did you have I used one of the very first optical EHL rigs and there was no cameras on, on it in those, no video cameras and no spectrometers in those days. It was all done through lenses and um, just conventional, believe it or not, 35mm film cameras. And I, I photographed EHL contacts with debris going in in and out of them and watched how different sorts of materials, different sorts of particles went into contacts, how they broke down and how they damaged the surfaces. So that was kind of to get a, like a mechanistic understanding of, how particles were, were were, causing damage to rolling bearing type contacts. And then I, d- I ran rolling bearing tests on, on 6305, little 6305 deep groove ball bearings, and looked at how the wear correlated with contaminants in the lubricant and built sort of empirical models based on that. And then I did a, some ball on disc stuff that you were referring to. Ball on roller type work it was, I think, to see how particles caused where in those in those sorts of experiments? I mean, it's, cause that one, one of the great things about the lab at Imperial is all those different sorts of bits of equipment that you can play around with and adapt for your own your own purposes.
0: I tell you what struck me and Tom, who works here as well, is we, we had, a, had a good look through your thesis and um, it's still very current. A lot of that work, you, you know, it was, so we're we're doing some debris work now, and the work is you know it's worth thirty years old, I suppose now, but it's still it's still. Yeah. You know, it's it's amazing the work. And I suppose it's similar in a lot of tribology. You, you know, although, you know, I, I can think of my own PhD as well. I'm sure the similar work happens still now.
1: It doesn't go away. These problems don't go away. No. Yeah.
0: So is it like the debris dents you're looking at or more on the abrasive
1: kind of side? It was a bit of both. So yeah. so some of it was about dents and how a particular kind of debris could cause what kind of dent. So if if you had hard metal particles, steel or, or bits of copper or something from a bearing bush or how that went into a contact and caused dents. And then that would lead to rolling contact fatigue. So I got a little bit into how you model contact fatigue with dents in it. And and then if it was a, a particle of sand, then when that went into the contact, it's the, sort of the sand fractures into tiny little pieces and doesn't do much damage when it fractures. But then all those tiny little pieces act as abrasives, and so you don't get really get a fatigue process; you get a, a abrasive wear process. And it's and because one large particle of sand breaks down into thousands of small particles of sand, that, that wear can be quite quick. So you you can get abrasive wear and a, and a bearing that uh, that wears out quite quick because it's you know, with, with sand in it.
0: So so you finish your PhD. Um, short stint with British Gash. And then, so you joined Sheffield as, as a lecturer or a postdoc?
1: No, I went, I went to a, a lectureship straight away and I mean, and I've been there ever since really, and, and it, it's been a great move for me. It, it was difficult to leave Imperial cause you know, I was enjoyed working there and, and, and some great colleagues, but it was also fun to strike out, you know, on my own and build a group up here. And there, there had been bits of tribology work done at Sheffield in the past, um, Phil Neal had worked on journal bearings and hydrodynamic pad bearings at Sheffield. And he, he had retired, I think, a couple of years before. And sadly, his lab was completely gutted. and All the stuff was, I don't know, dispersed or wherever. And, and so I had to rather start again from scratch. And there'd been work done swift um, and some gear work had been done at Sheffield in the, in the past. But, but I was rather starting things from scratch.
0: It's just like kind of nice, like a, a clean slate to start. And yeah, I, I know what you mean, though. It's just like when you lose all these old rigs, that they look old for the first couple of years after someone's finished with them, but then you, they are useful, you know,
1: to generally. Yeah, like. absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so starting with nothing really, you know, starting mm-hmm. with no, no equipment. And that was my biggest concern. Um, Richie and Hugh were really good and they helped me out and they lent me some stuff um, and they helped me get started. And then I used kind of undergraduate projects to get bits of equipment in. Um, I, f- I first started working on railway track and, and indentations in railway track. There was quite a, quite a, a pedigree of railway research at Sheffield. Um, Rod Smith, who subsequently went to Imperial, but Rod Smith uh, had a, a railway research group and, and, and he helped me get started in sort of the railway track bit. So I did work aware of railway track, effective dents on railway track and, and contact fatigue. So I got a couple of grants in that and um, that helped establish some equipment. So how, how big is your department now, the tribology uh, group? The, 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 the group, there's uh, five of us, academics, and around about 50 PhD students. Wow. We got three, it, it's, it's, good, it's a good size. Um, the, the department was, was refurbished, kind of finished about uh, three or four years ago. And we got a lovely lab in a glass tower in the middle of the department so so we've got a nice the leonardo lab is under this sort of glass atrium and uh, we have a preparation lab and we've got a heavy heavy testing lab as well where we can test bigger components bigger bearings and other kinds of uh, rail and automotive components
0: okay so you you rose to kind of head a department yeah what 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 is it like to be you know head of a like department. yeah you know like what, what do you do kind of day to day and yeah is it as stressful well as i think it is
1: you, know? <laughs> you, you you made it sound like a some sort of um succession tv like show you know fought my way <laughs> to the top <laughs> um, which is not quite how it works at, no. at, in, in universities yeah it, it, it's an unusual job i tell you you know when you're a, a research professor you're not really very well prepared to be head of department of a of, of a big department. You know, it's a big organization. At the time I joined, there were, I guess, 35, 40 academic staff, about a thousand students, would you believe, and a um, hundred or so sports staff. So, I mean, it's a big organization. And suddenly you're in charge of a big organization with something like a 12, £12 million pound turnover. I mean, there's lots of support around that, you know, that, that, that there's a faculty that you sit within, a university you sit within. So it's quite a change. And also at the time that I became head, the university restructured into faculties. So there was a, a big difference in the way departments ran. And I was part of that process of, so in a bit like the building thing we were talking about, really quite exciting building a department in that new faculty structure. And we were given a lot of autonomy in how we built the department, how we recruited staff and what directions we took it in. So it, it did a challenge? And, and there's a lot of day-to-day tricky things to deal with, personnel issues to deal with. And when mm-hmm. you have that number of staff or when you've got that number of students, there's always somebody doing something funny that you have to sort out. And I used to joke with my, the, the chief administrator who I worked alongside. And, and I would say to her that if there's that there's one crisis every day, and if there, if there isn't a crisis today, there'll be two tomorrow. And there's always some strange thing going on, <laughs> which the head would need to sort out personnel issues and so on. So I did it for, I did it for a one and a half terms so 6 years
0: okay
1: and um normally it's it's a job that research professors don't like doing but i have to say mm-hmm. when i look back on it it's fantastic i really enjoyed it and it was a real chance to to develop in different ways you, your research takes a bit of a hit and and it, and it took a while to really get back into into and i carried, i carried on researching during that time which was good i had i had um we formed the leonardo center with help from Peter Jost and that that helped a lot that we had that infrastructure that that he'd helped um, helped us put together helped help fund and so Matt Marshall joined about that time we did more work with Alan Matthews in materials and Adrian Leyland so so I could keep my research going through through that structure
0: what would be your kind of split you know in the week of like research to admin your duties as a
1: as the head probably would be about Three quarters, one quarter. I suspect at that time, mm. three quarters admin, one quarter. Yeah. You know, some people call it admin. Mm. Some people call it leadership, don't they? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> some, some. some <laughs> what I, what, what I think I was supposed to be doing was leadership. Probably I did a lot of admin, management tasks, and and less real leadership. But I, but leadership was an important part of it. Setting the strategy for the department. Um, in, in encouraging and inspiring people to go in the ways that you want them to go. Um, but there, there was a, a, a burden of, you know, all the all the HR processes, the, the promotion processes, the, the processes for uh, recruiting staff, managing staff were very time consuming. You know, during that time, during the six years, I recruited 34 members of academic staff. And, and that's and and that's a, a lot of interview. We were doing two interview rounds every, every well, maybe more than that, two or three interview rounds every year, um, recruiting a lot of staff. And that's a that's a time consuming process: reading all the CVs and shortlisting, interviewing, and and, and uh, building connections to to try to establish people to join the department.
0: Well, it's hard work as well, recruitment, isn't it? Because mm. you know people might yeah. just pull out or not turn up or yeah, lie, and all, you, all you, you kinds can, yeah. of things. You
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> You'd go through months and months of effort to recruit somebody, and then, and then at the last minute, that they would change their mind, or, or for whatever reason, yeah. But that, but that was actually quite exciting as well, because, because the depart we were able to, you know, I was able to shape the department with, with, with my colleagues who were here already. We were able to shape it and and go into new areas, you, you know. um Sheffield obviously has always had a very strong manufacturing research slant, so AMRC. Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre at Sheffield uh, is a sort of flagship activity. And and we were able to work alongside them to recruit research academics into the department which could work alongside them. So that, that, you know, additive manufacturing and and machining science. And and then we were able to build new groups in energy in collaboration with other departments around the university and uh, strengthen the dynamics group. So traditionally, Sheffield was very strongly focused on mechanics, solid mechanics, Fatigue structures uh, and, and, and and fluids and, and and so it was nice to to, to break into some new new areas. And that's quite a satisfying aspect, shaping the department in that way.
0: It's it's always like fascinating all the different groups and how how they how they kind of grow and it's the in what I find really interesting at the universities is when they have like the interdepartmental kind of groups or or collaborations. I always think they're yeah. the most kind of exciting things. And I suppose you. See those things happening and and you know help with with putting people together.
1: Um, one of the things that that, that, I, that I created with with colleagues in the faculty and also outside the faculty was this organization called Insignio, which was um, sort of I, I kind of called it bioengineering. Classic bioengineering is when tribologists think about it, they think about hip joints and knee joints, don't they? And mm-hmm. and um, lubrication of prosthetics but this is a different kind of bioengineering. This is bioengineering in in insignia. It's all about what they call insignia in in silico medicine. So engineering modeling of the human body and its response to interventions. So, um, you know, and and, and doing all that sort doing all those sort of prototyping of of surgical interventions in software, first of all, and how the body responds to external stimuli or impacts or whatever, and how trauma and diseases and modeling those processes. So it's bioengineering, but not the kind of classical bioengineering that, that I, w- I would have thought about when I first joined. And that was really nice to see. And, and, and that that was an, an, an activity that was joint with, or still is, you know, I shouldn't say was, it was, it was created at that time when I was head. But it was it was it it, it's, it is joint with um, computer science, uh, engineering materials, the medical schools, and and the clinicians. You know, so it's very interesting, very wide ranging activity.
0: In terms of the the research funding at Sheffield. Uh, well, I suppose particularly the tribology group is. What what's the split between industry and the research councils?
1: Are you very industrial focused? Probably much the same as most other successful groups. Pro- probably around about fifty-fifty. I would I would think. Um, perhaps a bit more skewed towards RCUK. It's quite quite evenly balanced. The, the EU bit, you know, has dropped off in probably for many people it dropped off in recent years. Was something I'd really try, like to get back into again. Yeah. A reasonably reasonably balanced, and 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 the other th- the other thing which is great about tribology, and you know this, Mark, is that, that that when one industry wanes, another one is on the rise. So so just like like I'm sure you've found is that where we specialise in one industry, now we do much more work with wind, much more work with electric vehicles and um, aerospace. Whereas a lot of my work in the past had been on um, IC engines, we're doing less of that. So so that's kind of nice about being a tribologist is that you're not quite so tied to one industry as, as some other disciplines are.
0: Exactly, I'm always really surprised by what comes through the door here. You know, it's always fascinating. Yeah. I think the, the issue we have, and I'm guessing the uni- university is similar, is is getting people to search for tribology, you know, and that the people understand that the issues they're having can be solved with the mm. tools in tribology. I think I think that's an issue sometimes. You know, people if you look at the kind of search terms people look for you know be be things from plants and things they might say things like uh, I don't know stiction might be a good example you know I doubt yeah. I've got stiction on my website but I guarantee there'd be you know hundreds of people searching for that term because that's what how people describe the failures of certain things <laughs> You know,
1: like it's yeah, just get, 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 yeah. getting
0: the word out there that you can help in certain places
1: yes I guess in, in some ways it's been our it's been one of our successes and one of our weaknesses, hasn't it, that, that, that the word, it, it's helped in the sense that it's drawn us together as a community and, and, and let us look broader and wider. And and those in the know certainly cluster around that word, but there would be many who, who don't realise they've got this tribology problem or issue or concern and things that we could help them with. Yeah, so uh, what do you... You know what do you do for fun, Rob <laughs> Up in Sheffield? What do you <laughs> Well, um, I, you know, first of all, when you're thinking about Sheffield, don't be thinking about that grimy industrial northern city. No, of city, course
0: okay? not. No, no, I'm thinking about the Peak, the
1: peak and Lake District. <laughs> of course so I'm you are. <laughs> Well, and that's where I live. So, so I, I live out in the Peak District, and um, I I have uh, a house with a with a with a lot of land in. Um, in the Peak District, and and so I, I think it's fun. I'm not sure. I haven't decided yet whether it's fun or not. but This is a, a, house, a house that required quite a lot of work and a, and a, and a lot of land, which required a lot quite a lot of work. Okay. So my wife my wife calls it extreme gardening. So that's, so if you want to know what I do for fun, it's called extreme gardening. If I said I was a gardener for fun, that would make me sound old. <laughs> and but this is extreme gardening. So this is gardening with with the use of very powerful um, tools, power tools, chainsaws and chopping down trees and digging ditches and redirecting waterways. And I'm building a tree house at the moment, oh, actually wow. right now, my bit of extreme gardening is that I've got this beautiful oak tree, which is just perfect to build a tree house. Yeah. And I'm building a treehouse and a zip wire. And so I don't think we can call it, it's not like pedestrian gardening with flowers and that. It's more about. <laughs> it's extreme gardening. <laughs> it's extreme gardening <laughs> and I'm thinking about starting a TV series. Rob's extreme gardening challenge. Yeah, I <laughs> I'd, I'd watch it like a YouTube series about you. You know. Yeah.
0: How much yeah. land do you have? Do you do well, like hay or
1: uh, like three, a- three three acres? Okay. And, and yeah. I, no, I don't do any. There's nothing agricultural going on. Okay. In, in America, they call it homesteading. Actually, yes, so I've been yeah. watching YouTube to teach myself how to do stuff like this. I've been watching videos from, and they call it homesteading there. No, i I'm I, I'm not I'm not. There's no livestock. And, um, there are, there are four tortoises, <laughs> tortoises. That, that's the only, tortoises. that's the only livestock on the, on the estate. And I wondered about whether we should get a it's beautiful cause it backs onto the river Derwent. Okay. So we've got this lovely view of the river Derwent and I fear if we had livestock, they would end up in the river. I don't know.
0: Yeah. You could have 20 head of sheep there. <laughs> I could,
1: I could. And well, I think my wife would like to keep chickens. She kept oh, okay. chickens when yeah. she was a, when she was a child, she had, they had chickens. So I think maybe when I've when I've got the house and the garden under control, then mm. I, I think perhaps we'll start start on chickens and work our way up.
0: Have you? Are you going to treat yourself to a small like tractor or something? Or well, there's quite a few now. I've got it? a little.
1: Uh, yeah, I've got a I've got a ride on. They call them lawn tractors. They're really yes. ride on mowers. But, yes. But I, yeah, I think that would be quite nice. So that would be quite fun, wouldn't it? With a little Massey Ferguson vintage tractor, and I could and I could uh, I could work on that tribologist dream <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> okay cool do you go hiking and things in the in the peak district
1: yeah absolutely and and we you know we're right in the heart of all that we're, we're we're right at the foot of um if you're a rock climber you probably know about frog edge or or, or or kerber edge or kerber gap these are beautiful i'm not a rock climber but it's a it's a really nice spot for um rock climbers and mountain bikers kind of gritstone edge and we're right at the foot of that, so it's a lovely spot. Rather lovely spot to be in.
0: Oh, Rob, I'm very jealous. It sounds and that's beautiful. That's kind of nice.
1: Hi- hiking from your f- hiking from your house is nice as well. You know, actually, just leaving the front door and walking out onto the paths. Oh, home to a home back
0: to a roaring fire as well and a nail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> were you involved in like the early days of the ultrasonic sensors? Like, I have done that. You might have been, but I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. You know Why? Well, you know, I'd like to think I pioneered that. That that, yeah. that yeah. was um, oh, fantastic. Yeah. It was it, it was an interesting, interesting time, and and it came from my time at Imperial. That I don't know if it's still the case, but the tribology lab at Imperial was directly opposite the the non destructive testing lab run by Peter Corley. and so myself and Bruce Drinkwater, um, who was a PhD at the same time, he he was building a. Um, a wheel probe, which is like a, an NDT trans, an alternate transducer inside a rubber wheel that you ran across a structure and that the, the, the alternate signal, the, the sound wave would pass through the rubber wheel into the structure, bounce off your defect and back into the rubber wheel again. So you mm-hmm. can imagine sort of a handheld probe. And know these are commercially available now, but the problem he was having was that the sound wave was reflecting back from the interface between the rubber wheel and the surface. So he, he wasn't getting his sound wave to penetrate into the structure below. And and that I kind of thought, well, that this is actually exactly the same problem that that, that we tribologists have. We need to know how much of a particular one body is in contact with another. And if you've got a, a ball bearing, how much and with rough surfaces, how much of it's in contact with the other face? Mm. Um, and later, so we started we started studying together. I, I, I was just finishing my PhD at the time, and he was about halfway through. We started studying how sound waves reflected back from interfaces dry ones at first to look at how the roughness was affected. And as you loaded a rough contact together and unloaded it, what was the um what was the, the real area of contact between the two bodies and what was elastic and what was plastic. What happened you reloaded it, what happened you moved it, different references, different materials. So that's kind of how I first got into to ultrasonics. And then and then later, as I, just as I was joining Sheffield, I had the idea that this would work for thin oil films as well. That the oil film would become its own reflector, and so you could, you could use that to, you could use ultrasound to measure the thickness of an oil film. And I think it kind of been neglected in the past because obviously oil films are very thin, and the wavelength of ultrasound is quite quite long. You know, quite a, quite a long wavelength, much larger than the thickness of the oil oil film. So people kind of neglected it because you normally can't measure something small with something big, but. This is a this is more like a a transmission reflection process rather than looking for discrete reflections. So so that was just as I was joining Sheffield and it was a great focus for my for my time at Sheffield, you know, to build that Mm. into working working methods.
0: And you see them uh, from your group and other, even companies now, isn't it, that you see them being used everywhere, yeah. you know, and to great effect. Yeah. You know, I'm really, always really, sometimes a bit confused by the methodology, if I'm honest, but, but, yeah. but, you know, the physics, but the the results and the, you know, what they can glean from the results is always fantastic, you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, there are challenges. Mm-hmm. If, if it's a simple bearing, simple, large bearing, and by large, I mean, Big contact area, journal bearings, thrust pads, metal, oil, metal. You can get some fantastic results, and yes. and 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 um, ultrasound is fast. You know, you can you can sample at, at at tens of kilohertz, so you can capture all sorts of dynamic effects. But it, it it gets more challenging when the materials are more complicated, when there's layered materials, or or when the oil film spatially is small. Not thickness is small, but that that spatially it's small, because sound waves are quite quite big transducers are quite big so looking at something small is difficult and and um, when you've got complex materials that form multiple reflections but the the nice thing is is that it's not just a lab thing you can put it on machines you know you don't have to do too many modifications on the actual machine so we've had these things on on metal rolling to look at sheet steel being rolled in a metal plant in a pilot mill mill and we've had got it we've got one in a wind turbine and a big conrod bearings in, in small, well, small conrod bearings in, in engine test stands, automotive engine, but also a big one, and a piston rings in marine diesel engines. So, so it lends itself to applications in the field as well. Sometimes the signals can be a bit complicated, but where, where, you're, where you're mistaken, Mark, is the actual physics is really quite simple. There's a very little really? equation that I can write down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's often getting to that equation, getting the, getting the signal simple enough that you can use that, oh, okay. that equation.
0: Yeah. Can can you explain like, like simply how they work, you know, how you use those signals? Yeah. yeah.
1: Obviously you stick the, you stick the sensor on the outside of the component, you pulse it with a a short voltage pulse that the piezoelectric sensor generates a, a sound pulse. That sound pulse travels through your, your component, your bearing component. And then, and then when it hits an interface, between two materials, part will transmit through and part will reflect back. And an echo, you know, and the amount that echoes back, the proportion of the wave that echoes back, proportion of the amplitude of the wave, depends on the mismatch between the materials. So if it was steel against air, it would all be reflected back. If it was steel against oil, 95% would be reflected back. If you've got a thin film, then you get. A reflection at the front of the film and a reflection at the back of the film but they kind of get mixed in together so you get a reflection that just comes back from the thin film and there's quite a simple relationship between the proportion of the wave reflected and the stiffness of that thin layer and it's and it's that that was the basis and that was the work that i did just as i was leaving Imperial um and uh, we, we, we we were able to use that the amplitude of that reflection to get the stiffness of that oil film and then from the stiffness of the
0: film thickness. Going on to then to some of your m- more recent work in, um, the, I thought that was mm. fascinating. The work in the wind, the wind turbine on the high-speed shaft bearing. Yeah. A- and you infer the Hertzian contact conditions. Yeah. From the yeah. From the deflection or the movement from of the, the surface. Refle- from the
1: reflection. Yeah. So so a, a ball bearing is quite a tricky thing to look at the oil film thickness, right? That, To get the lubricant film thickness between the roller or the ball and the raceway is difficult because the contact is so small, you know, what, what it, sub-millimeter, isn't it? You know, a, a, even a big ball bearing has probably only got a millimeter size of the contact width. And if the transducer itself is, say, two, three, four, up to seven millimeters in size, you simply can't get the wave onto that, try focusing it, but that's difficult. So actually measuring the oil film thickness is quite challenging and we can't really do that in a big ball bearing. We can, we can see it change, but we can't get it. What people would like is the oil film thickness in point, whatever it is of a micron, you know, but what, what, what we we did two things in, in, in there. One thing is that we looked, we didn't try to look at the contact, but we looked at the deflection of the raceway. You can imagine the raceway as each roller goes past. You can, the, the, the the raceway compresses and relaxes a little bit, and we measured that compression. Mm. But because the speed because the wave hasn't got to travel quite as far because the raceway's been compressed, mm. it doesn't have to travel very far, and it and it comes back a little bit quicker. It comes back sort of tens of microseconds, uh, sorry nanoseconds, quicker. You can pick that up with a high a high sampling rate digitizer and convert that into the deflection and hence the contact load. And that, that was quite instructive to see how every single roller that passes on this raceway in this high-speed shaft up a turbine, how it um, how it compresses the raceway and relaxes again. And each, each roller was different as well. The rollers were different. So the rollers were, the low, and we use a kind of a Hertz calculation to back-calculate the load from the deflection. And each roller was a little bit different as they were different, we, th- we think, we're not absolutely sure, but we think caused by the geometry differences between the rollers of course so the, it won't all be exactly the same the yeah. yeah and and then um as a phd student who's been working on looking at grease in those contacts he's been spot, will gray has been sponsored by timkin and he's been looking at how grease forms in the how grease moves around in the inlet mm-hmm. so again we can't really look at it in the contact itself but we can look at it in the inlet region and the outlet region we've got a bit more space to get our waves back from and seeing how how grease distributes, how 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 the thickness of the film, the meniscus that forms in the inlet and the outlet, so that's pushed it. That's pushed the methods forward, yes. from what we were doing, you know, probably 20 years ago on measuring oil film thickness in journal bearings.
0: What What struck me with that paper is is the 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 results on on things like torque and the slippage, you know, with the with the early failures on that particular bearing in the high speed shaft, and. Yeah, I believe I think you quote in the paper that you 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 only measure about 0.1 percent of the time or something due to the sampling, yeah. the, the yeah, computing we power. Do. Because that data is so amazing and so valuable, I think, it, especially if you did get it like a weck failure on those bearings yeah, by chance. Absolutely. Is it is there <laughs> scope to get more data there, or what's the what's holding did, did, it back? Did, did,
1: you, you, you know you, you ask a really important question what we did in those experiments which turned out to be the wrong approach is is we we measured uh, one second every 20 minutes i think that was what it was one second every 20 minutes which sounds like so like randomly so yes, so yeah. uh, and even then you get terabytes of data because it's oh, running okay. for two or three years you got to cut you got to measure quite fast but otherwise you don't capture the rollers you don't get enough data points underneath each roller so we want to get a decent number of data points underneath each roller um so capture one second every 20 minutes which sounds like a sensible thing to do doesn't it, it does. but actually what you end up doing is calculate is, is a lot of that data is pretty boring because nothing's happened <laughs> there's no <laughs> there's nothing happening in the turbine because the turbine's probably either it is so a lot of it's at the, the turbine reaches it's um its operating speed and then it, and then and then it pitches to, to maintain that speed. So actually the interesting time is startup and shutdown and anomalously high wind loadings for example. So most of our data is boring data at steady state. We could have done with capturing much more stuff at or indeed something that you could measure failure happening but yes. we 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 don't have much resolution in that area. So a strategy for for measuring either I, I can't see us measuring more data because even then, we simply couldn't store it all. And even if you can store it all, what do you do with it all? How do you process it? And and the poor PhD students have got three <laughs> or four, two ter- two three terabyte drives, um, and how they process it. They try to automate routines, but even still, so there's a lot of manual processing. So I don't think I don't think the approach is necessary to record for longer periods of time, but record in a more clever way. Mm, yeah. Like to so have some kind of
0: like so, trigger when it's gusting. Some sort something. of
1: triggering system. Yeah. 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 That, that would have been, you know, record more at startup. For example, at, at startup, we saw some spikes in the load. We don't have many data points, but we saw spikes in the load at, 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 at bearing startup. And this is maybe some transients in the, in the drive train, the, the generator kicking in or something. But you suddenly see a much higher load. It's starting, I "Oh, I wonder what's causing that, and is that something that's repeatable?" Do you see it? And, and c- capturing that sort of information would be, would be interesting.
0: So the work follows on from. I, I believe it's even the same bearing as the NREL experiment, isn't it? It's the the three two 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 yeah. two two, two, two <laughs> bearing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it's. I think it is actually by by pure coincidence. Yeah. I, I think it was the same the same bearing. It wasn't actually the same one in the drivetrain. I think, okay. I think the, this one had, I think the one we had, had two upstream bearings and one downstream bearing on the high speed shaft. Okay. I think the end rail shaft was the other way around. I think it had one upstream and two downstream. Okay. Yeah. So, so, th- and so just by coincidence, they'd use a strain gauge approach, um, and very hard, quite hard to correlate the two experiments, but, and because they were different conditions and it, and it was a different size turbine yes but it was interesting there 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 was a bit of a match you know you could you could see that there was some similar things happening
0: oh it's a lovely piece of work well done i suppose that the other no it's good it's the other the other piece of work i was really impressed with recently was the work on well all your work but the 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 more recent one is the the journal bearing rig you have and 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 simulating the uh, firing of a internal combustion engine on the on the journals um yeah yeah, Jonas talk us through that and, and
1: yeah so so yes it that the idea was to look at d- dynamic film formation in journal bearings and it was a rig that we were given by Mitsubishi and th- this was this was for their work on piston pumps and so that that, that wasn't particularly designed for uh, the IC engine case we sort of modified it to look at the, to mm-hmm. to get the same sort of lubrication profile in a, in a journal bearing that you'd see caused by uh, the the IC engine firing and and then so there are sensors inside the shaft, but also sensors on the outside on on the bearing shells themselves. And we can put different displacement cycles on on the shaft to to to, to, to simulate the the firing of the of the um, pistons. And so you can see how quickly the film forms and how quickly it it decays. Kind of that's sort of the principle. That's the idea behind the rig. And yeah, and I guess we proved we could do it. And we, we are working with. Uh, there's, we're working with a company who, are, who who model that sort of thing and, and we're helping them validate their models. But I suppose it was more a case of s- seeing how quickly we could... We haven't done very much analytical work ourselves on it, just more experimental, just building the, the methods to, to measure these transient transient films.
0: How, how I see it being used, or, or one thought I had, was... As you're trying to optimise these oil for low viscosity, if if your instrument is accurate enough, you'd be able to find out what the critical point is for different engines, for the oil viscosity, for the for the journals. Do, do you think there's potential there for like a?
1: Yeah, I, I think that that is an interesting concept. That if if you if you know where the as you say, where the critical point is. You, you want it to have a nice high viscosity, don't you? Yes. Nice high viscosity, thick film at that critical point. And everywhere else you want to have a nice low viscosity and, and 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 lower shearing losses. So um having a lubricant that's designed to to perform that function, to thin when you want it to thin and, and keep stay thick when you want it to stay thick would be an interesting concept. I haven't quite managed to join the dots up yet, but we, we do also measure measure viscosity with as ultrasound as well. So um, all the work that we've just been talking about just now is is all using longitudinal waves. Um, you can also generate a shear wave. And the shear wave does it like a microscopic shearing okay. of the lubricant. Yes. And from that reflection of that, you can look at the viscosity. So we've also measured viscosity inside journal bearings to see how the viscosity changes as you go 360 around the oil film thickness. And that's quite instructive that you get viscosity changes with the temperature, as the temperature changes, and viscosity with the changes as the pressure changes as well, and you get those two effects superimposed on each other, and you yeah. can get a viscosity profile. And if you've got the viscosity and you've got the oil film thickness, then you can look at, you, and you can determine the power loss as well. Yes. And we've not quite managed to link that in to, to, maybe up some next round of work on this dynamic machine. We're we'll, we'll trying to get, to try to get that working, and then we can see how the torque varies. Yes. and see how that talk is distributed around the bearing because that would sort of link into what you're talking about you know a, an oil film which is thick where you want it to be and mm. thin where you don't want it to be
0: this work is being sponsored already is it do you have an oil company involved or is it is it from the hardware side
1: uh this is more from the hardware side that this one and um, we at different times we have oil companies um i mean lubrizol help with a lot of this this work and lubrizol, um, uh, funded PhD students in this area. And, and actually Lubazol use some of these methods in, 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 the, in their, in their work. Yeah. I
0: see great potential for worked. the, for, you know, for the formulators to use that type of technique to,
1: to, to even now with, with... And, and the most recent application has been batteries, lithium ion batteries. That's been fascinating. There's, there's quite a lot of battery research that goes on at Sheffield in, in our chemical engineering, more about how different sorts of chemistries for batteries and batteries are lots of thin layers of electrodes and electrolyte all sandwiched together in a, in a, in a nice little packet so that's been a lot of fun looking at how ultrasound can be used to detect what's happening inside a battery and i've had a couple of phd students working in in that area um to build not it's not tribology really it's not really appropriate for tribo gatherings but it, i i think is it tribo not really tribology because because um most things are stationary and nothing's rubbing against each other, but it's thin films. It's detecting thin films. And as, as the electrode, as the anodes um, and cathodes adsorb and diesel graphite, the Young's modulus changes. And, and so um, because the Young's modulus changes, you get a different reflection signal. So we can, we can monitor, we can monitor a battery being charged up and discharged. And if there's damage in a battery.
0: Yes. Yeah, so ma- measuring the charge state and the
1: damage. And here, here's a number of you to play with that, the lithium goes backwards and forwards, and, and because you can measure the charge, the charge change, you can work out how much lithium goes backwards and forwards. And, okay. and as, as a simple iPhone battery, a, around about half a gram of lithium goes from the cathode to the anode and back again. Okay. So we think of these things as sort of solid state, but actually they're moving parts. You know, half a gram of lithium is, is, trans, is, is transporting backwards and forwards, and that changes the acoustic properties, and that's what we're measuring.
0: Going back to, you, is it tribology? I, and, you know, us getting out there a bit more is, I, I, some of the American academics, I believe they call it um, interfacial engineering or interfacial science. Some, Yeah, the battery technology, they, the battery sen- sensor technology would be covered by that, wouldn't it? And, and absolutely tribology. it would, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, sh- I, sh- I should use that. I should use that phrase, Mark, because absolutely it is. Yeah. You know, absolutely it is. How sound waves travel across interfaces. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's good. I'll use
0: that. Interfacial engineering. Yeah, I've used it a few times. It does work quite well. We've pinched it from I think it's from Greg Sawyer's group.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I'll, I'll change my title. I'll change my title to Professor of Interface Engineering.
0: There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, where do you think ultrasonic sensors have had the kind of biggest impact? You know, in in well, not just in tribology in, uh, in your research.
1: I, I I think probably seals. Mechanical face seals, uh, automotive engine bits, um, crankshaft journal bearings, things like that. Um, That's probably where I. I think we've done lots of. We've helped lots of people understand how their how their components work. I think that's probably the impact we've had is help people understand.
0: Seal, SEALs all, seals, always crop up don't they and unfortunately they're not well I don't find yeah. them that interesting but they are extremely important <laughs> frequently yeah. they're the weakest yeah. part of many systems because they're so cheap and they themselves aren't they they're, they're formulated with about 20 different chemicals and, and they see mm. the oil which as well is formulated with a bit, about 20 different chemicals so they interact in some way and usually they're the first thing to fail. And uh, yeah, so how are they yeah. used with with the ultrasonics? What do you do there on the seals? So,
1: so we, we, one of the very very first projects was on mechanical face seals, which which are uh, um, hard components, ceramics, yes, uh, or or metals, and the seal is designed to leak. Of course, it's designed yes. to allow a little bit of of, of its sealed uh, fluid to leak, usually hydrocarbon, and but you don't want it to leak too much because it's, that's not good for the environment, you know. No. Um, but you want to leak just enough so it forms that lubricating film. So measuring that. So that's where we started out a long time ago. And, and we worked with a number of seal companies, uh, mechanical face seal companies. And a couple of them have actually adopted. They, they actually use the methods themselves now in their seal designs. And okay. recently, we've, the much more common seal, the one we were talking about just now, is, you know, astomeric seals. Yeah, lip seals, Yeah lip seals and, and O-rings and stuff like that. And that's that's typically been quite difficult for us because the way ultrasound works, you get a, uh, a better response if you've got metals on either side of the oil film, Just steel, oil, steel, or steel, oil, ceramic, or steel, oil, brass. If you've got steel, oil, rubber, then you've got a big acoustic mismatch between the materials. So it's always been a bit trickier. But as we've got better with our processing methods and better with our... Sampling pulsing methods. We started measuring oil films in in O-rings, um, as they reciprocate backwards and forwards across across a, a surface. Yeah, okay. And that's quite quite new work uh, to look at how how we published that. That was done and was sponsored by Safran, um mm-hmm. to look at uh, actuator seals, and that that's been quite successful. We measure able to measure the oil film thickness beneath the reciprocating
0: ring we, we've randomly done some work on the mechanical face seals here for a, a mining company in um in australia believe it or not and they, they mm. have quite a fascinating tribology don't they because it, yeah th- these are these are i think we're talking about the same thing it's the kind of flat on flat uh, yeah. con- there's a flat yeah. on flat contact but it seems the ones that don't fail the ones that last longer so the ones with a um with a wave machined, not not necessarily yeah. on purpose, <laughs> so they can generate the hydrodynamic pressure because it, yeah. they're not completely flat, and the completely flat ones don't work quite as well. Then, and, and
1: there are spiral groove designs as well. Yes, to, to, mm. do sort of similar similar sort of thing. As you say, either mm. a wavy design or yeah. a spiral groove to help to help that film formation, that yeah. pumping action.
0: Um, yeah. So, in terms of your illustrious career so far, I'd like to add okay. <laughs> there's more to come but well, what do you think is the biggest problem you've solved or the biggest breakthrough you've
1: yeah kind of had? I, it goes right back to that it, it's the one we've talked about absolutely there's no doubt that 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 uh, you know as as a, as a new P, as a phd student using a sound wave to measure an oil film was for sure the, the, the biggest breakthrough um, and a lot of my work comes from comes from that um, mm. that domain
0: what was it i suppose going back to those days you know, can you remember the first time you saw the result from doing that work? Yes, or, absolutely yeah, I can. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Hmm. Y- you know, there's a, there's a, there's a theory that, that when, when you go and see a beautiful piece of artwork in the Louvre or whatever and, you, and, you, and you're inspired by it and your mind becomes clear and your mind and and <laughs> and you, yeah. everything feels right in the world. Mm. I remember the day when we first measured an oil film and, and interpreted yeah. it and did all the calculations and everything fitted on the curve beautifully and able Look at look at, and, and, and and there was that same feeling. of, yep, yeah, everything's right in the world today. Oh, that's <laughs> and I, I remember sweet. that distinctly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, when when would, would have that been? What what kind of year were we
1: talking? Oh, well, that I, I guess that that like I've been.
0: Like ninety five or uh, something.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, about 95, 96, Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, and it was all done right. on a Saturday as well because because the, the, the student was leaving, um, was about to graduate, and uh, done with a project student. And And so he was leaving, so I had to get him in to finish his experiments and help me with these experiments and and um so it was a very quite a, you know quite an exciting time get everything finished we had a time limit because he was off somewhere else and getting it all working
0: yeah
1: and a very simple equation we call it a spring model a very simple equation fitted all this data was able to produce oil film thickness which correlated with kind of uh hydrodynamic hydrodynamics of the bearing yeah.
0: well done and then you've built a career off it off that one measurement maybe pretty much yeah i've gone completely the other way
1: (laughs) it could could have been horribly wrong i try and do other things as well you know i i I, you know i don't i don't want to just do that because um but but we're pushing it back we're pushing the boundaries we're always looking for new ways of using sound waves but I, i try to do other things as well that i guess my heart is in in the acoustics and the use of acoustics in and, and so i sit partly between the tribology community and the acoustics community mm-hmm. and and so I, I i use acoustics for other stuff as well and i also do mm-hmm. do tribology of other things as well but i mean yeah. i guess that's something the the main thrust of it
0: yeah and from from that work i suppose has sprung you, you know definitely is it tribosonics and is it peak Tribosonic, to peak yeah well? two yeah. Two, com-
1: two companies tribosonics yeah. and peak to peak yeah um were both spun out by uh Ex PhD students of mine, and um, to basically offer these sorts of things as services yes. t- to industry, you know, th- th- we can do so much we can do in the lab here, but um t- to go out and install a, a set of sensors on uh, a customer's components parts, that's it, There's a quite a lot of logistics in that, and, and that's not something we're not we're not very we're not very well geared up for. But Peak to Peak can do that sort of thing. They can they can uh, put installations on components mm-hmm. in the field have got lots of experience in doing that. Yeah, well, and I can hand those things over to them.
0: Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. You, you know, it's, it sounds like a commercial enterprise that type of work, and there's yeah. pl- there's plenty. You know, well, you know, we, we we've been talking to Gary about various projects, and yeah, there's loads absolutely. of problems. I think these ultrasonics can be can be used for. And yeah,
1: what one one way of thinking about it is is it's like a tiny little mechanical test that mm. that you know we're all used to putting things in in um, in hydraulic test machines, doing stress-strain experiments and measuring deflection and, and and measuring bending and stuff, or measuring shear of things, in fact, and it, and it's like a, a microscopic mechanical test. You know, you're you're taking the material and you're deflecting it using just by you know, it's only deflecting by a few nanometers, and by recording the reflected signal, you're seeing how that 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 little microscopic deflection or microscopic shearing test takes place right at the interface. So you know so you can think of it in, in in terms of sort of more conventional macro scale mechanics as well, but this is a, a micro mechanics test.
0: Do Do you have any instruments that could measure pressure, viscosity coefficient, just of a of of a bulk fluid? Do Do you have any of those kind of available now?
1: Um, so what we what we're doing is is we is we've got a pressure vessel and we're sending sound waves into the pressure vessel to measure the viscosity of of, of the fluid as it's being and there's a as a phd student called gladys who's who's funded by ac2t and she's looking at the way viscosity uh, varies with pressure in a pressure vessel so okay. she's doing it with i i I forgot what the maximum pressure is is it 6 or 700 megapascals uh, okay, megapascals yeah. something like that i've forgotten what it is but not super high pressures but as high as we can get with our our equipment. Yes, reasonable. Well, it's AC2Ts. Yeah. And and um she's been looking at the way the ultrasonic signal changes at, because there you don't have to have your sensor inside your oil you can do it all from the outside. Yes. Um and and that's that's one area we we we're, we're working on. Um because ultrasound is doing something funny that that it it's very high frequency so so the viscosity that we measure is viscosity? You have to think of it as as the as the, as the molecules of the oil being sheared backwards and forwards a tiny amount, very very okay. fast. Yes. So so it's being sheared by a, a, um, a few nanometers laterally at frequencies of ten to the we don't really know actually, but probably around about ten to the 6, 10 to the 6, seven reciprocal seconds. So it is a high shear viscometer, but one that operates just a t- with a tiny little deflection. So it's not quite the same thing as um, what a rheometer would measure, or what the HSV would measure—it's something that's a bit different. And, and, and Gladys has been correlating results with conventional rheometry and HSV data, um, and and it's part of the curve, but it but it's not quite the same—not quite the same thing. For Newtonian fluids, it is the same thing, but for non-Newtonian fluids, formulated lubricants, it's not quite yes. the same
0: thing. I see. I see the limitation there. I think you know it's, its yeah a lot of people want to measure this the pressure viscosity coefficient now and it's it's yeah.
1: a huge struggle to do it I, I can't think of anything at the moment because uh you, you know you've got to pressurize the fluid in some way you don't get away from that mm. I guess the advantage is is that you you can pressurize it and not have to worry about sensors being in the pressurized fluid no.
0: right well um yeah, so I suppose a lot of people be wondering like as professor. At University of Sheffield, What what's what's your kind of day to day look like? You, you know, a lot of academic a lot of people in university might aspire to be like yourself. <laughs> I was wondering like if you yeah. give some insight oh, about yeah. what you do kind of day to day. Yeah,
1: well, well I mean it's fantastic variety. You know, it it, it is it's a very exciting and challenging job and, and has great variety in the activity. So obviously we teach, teach teach undergraduate. We don't we don't have terribly high teaching duties, um depends on which university you're at, but I teach fluid mechanics, I teach first year students. Um, And that's great, that's a lot of fun. And tutorial classes, the usual stuff, uh, lab classes, tutorial classes, um, helping conceiving and running final year projects. Um, And then working with my PhD students. And uh, I don't do very much research myself now at all. And and I, I would like to do more of my own hands on stuff. And, and, I, and, I, and I miss that. I, I process data sometimes, but I really don't do experiments myself. And I, um, I miss that a bit, but um, so that's the research research and teaching bit. Then there's a, a, the there's usual kind of, what do we call it? Sort of Professional development activities or, or, or the Americans call it service, don't they? Um, community do, doing work for reviewing papers or, or reviewing grants. Or mm. um, I do quite a bit of work with the Royal Academy uh, on different schemes that they operate. Um, there's quite a, probably a day a week on, on those sorts of activities and then helping run things around the department, you know, help. like I, I, we, we all divvy up the admin roles between us. So, and I'm, I'm what's called in what we call the de- department director of innovation. So I'm, I'm, my, I'm responsible of trying to stimulate innovation activities within our department, impact, spin outs, patenting, um, commercialization. Those sorts of things. So I, my admin role is to help stimulate that through various activities.
0: Do you have any kind of innovations appearing from the group at the moment? What, what do you have at the moment in that space?
1: Some fantastic work coming out of Roger Roger Lewis's stuff. You maybe you want to interview Roger next. Okay. That's when you when you when you go around the cycle and you've done Sheffield and yeah. go around come and visit again. Some hmm. some fascinating stuff um, and okay. really successful yeah. stuff on on railway track at egypt yes, and i've seen some of this at, yeah looks you might amazing. have seen some of that in yes, the press. yes it does and and using all sorts of different aspects of it but a couple of aspects one thing is about using dry ice to basically mm. uh, fire off and and uh, the um the uh uh the leaf layer on on railway track there's some some great things happening happening there um roger is is uh the only trial biologist I know that owns his own, I think he owns two trains, actually. He owns his own train. So you interview him and you can find all about that. Fantastic. What, 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 he has his own amazing. train. Wow, that's
0: brilliant. He's got a good way to do some research. What, what I find amazing about that, that, that some of Roger's things I've seen on online, is um, how, how it's really successfully been implemented, or, 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 well, I suppose it's been at least used as, like, prototypes, isn't it? But a lot of these yeah. kind of ideas yeah. stall... But taking it all the way through to like a moving train being used with a special carriage and it's it's taking place, yeah. is, fun, is brilliant, you know. They 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 they're taking it much further than you know an idea in a pub one night, aren't they? It's, it's it must be going yeah, really absolutely. well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, it takes it takes time and it takes it takes energy to to, to, to make that happen. But it but but it, but it it is. This is the value of death, isn't it? Exactly. Getting it from from the idea to something which is commercially viable. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's also part of the excitement as well.
0: Yeah, I see that as some some of the stuff kind of we do here is, you know, obviously we're different to universities. It, we do a lot of that, the, the, we say the D side, the development side. So it's just the boring taking like an idea that may have come from a university and just taking it through then, you know, in, yeah. in, in that space and, and making it useful to a company in some way, some kind of test method or some new way of looking at a lubricant or, you know, you know that type of thing and and it's long hard work you know the fun bits done it's proven mm. and then it's just the long you, you know the re- things like repeatability or like getting stuff made or like a hundred Absolutely. things going wrong and, yeah yeah <laughs>
1: and, and, and what happens when all your parameters change you know mm. um the, the effect of the change of environment and, and proving it under all the different sorts of conditions Yeah.
0: yes oh, well done to roger and well done to you for, for leading that kind of innovation side Okay, the last kind yeah. of question then is this is one of our one of the fun ones. So so you've probably heard the Radio Four Desert Island disc. Yes. So we've got Desert Island pin on disc. <laughs> so Fantastic. I'm gonna, I'm gonna maroon you on a desert island. Uh, but on yeah. this desert island there's a tribology lab and you well we call it the interfacial yeah. engineering lab. And you get one okay. piece of equipment to take with you for the, yeah. to use on the rest of your days. So what would you what would you like to take?
1: It's it's I'm taking an ultrasonic pulser and a scope. Okay. Mom, definitely. Living okay. on the island,
0: <laughs> brilliant. And you can measure the... the you, because the
1: I could measure. I could measure all sorts of things. <laughs> I, I, I can measure the thickness of the um of the uh, the coconut meat inside the shell and how there much liquid go. there is in there. Maybe perhaps I could do that. I could I could put the transducers in the in the water and see if there's any fish down there. Yeah. I use I I do all sorts of things with sound waves that had never been thought of before on a desert brilliant. island. So brilliant. definitely, I'll I'll have I'll have a, a pulser pulsar and, <laughs> and, and a and a scope.
0: You can like find the exact point at which the uh, coconuts are ripe and ready for eating or drinking.
1: I once tried this with boiled eggs to try okay. to find out when a boiled egg was cooked or not. <laughs> okay. what, what, what? <laughs> did it work? By it? looking to see if you could. Um, no, well, no. I'm probably able to revisit that, but trying to look at when something solidified, and mm. um, we did it with liquid metal actually. And again, okay. it was always it, it, You could see it, but it never quite. It was never quite clear line that we were trying to look at the, the solidification growing and we never never very simple to, to measure them we actually um emailed who's that who's that very experimental chef i forgot his name um oh the uh, snail uh, porridge guy come his name the, remember.
0: the duck guy the um yeah, Bloom, Blumenthal. 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 Uh, yeah. We, emailed,
1: we, we emailed we emailed his um his production crew and they emailed back saying oh, we've tried that already <laughs> <laughs> So I thought, you know, great idea. We would tell people how cooked their eggs were with a sound, with a transducer. They said, no, we tried that already. I thought Heston's already done it. I didn't see that on TV, but maybe he'd done it somewhere else. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> so we'll do, we'll do it with coconuts. We'll work out go. exactly.
0: Ah, they're yours. They're yours, Rob. Well, well really, done. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> oh well, Rob, anything you'd like to kind of plug or say before we uh, sign off?
1: No, no, I've done I've done enough. Uh, plugging and saying of things, so yeah. it's been great to talk to you, Mark, and, and always a pleasure. And we'll see each other again at the next SCLE conference, perhaps, or, or we perhaps will. Sooner? I don't know.
0: Yeah, we will do indeed. Yeah, I'm definitely going to SDLE, so We'll see you there. If not, be, if not I think before. Mark's going
1: to um, uh, Mark uh, Gary's going to present some stuff on white etching cracking there i think so oh, fantastic might, yeah uh, det- detection of, of webs, i think he's going to present some stuff on that yeah excellent after have to, nice to le- catch up on that
0: oh definitely it'd be lovely to see him and lovely to chat to you rob you're such a brilliant guy and like you <laughs> inspiration to all of us and like fantastic and yeah speak to you uh speak to you very soon <laughs> all right okay all right all right, all right. thanks okay. okay cheers everybody Bye bye. bye-bye